Welcome to another edition of Pod Jerky. I'm your host, Tom. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by MMA legend, Impact Wrestling Hall of Famer, the one and only Ken Shamrock. Welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off the interview basically the way I start off every interview now in this time that we're in. How are you doing with all the COVID that's going on right now? Um, you know, just like everybody else. Um just you know make and do um you know uh seems like the world kind of changed overnight for a lot of people and a lot of struggles in a lot of different areas a lot of different things so i think that just like everybody else just get up in the morning and keep putting one foot in front of the other and try to accomplish something every day and try to adjust to the way the world is going and uh, have a positive attitude yeah definitely that's we're very well put now, with combat sports, I found that they didn't really take a break from COVID. They were able to figure out a plan doing shows without an audience. And then I think the rest of the sports world took notice of that and started to do the same thing. How do you think that combat sports tried to figure that out or figured that out first to do this without fans and be able to continue their events? I think it was, you know, very creative and brave because... <laughs> I think, and especially when you do stuff like that, you create enemies, unfortunately. You know, they, they're, they're trying to keep things going. They believe that this was the right way to do it, even though the rest of the world was told that, you know, you can't do this. And they were able to figure out a way around that and do it. And hats off to them. But at the same time, we don't know what those repercussions are going to be down the road. So hopefully there isn't any and that there's no political backlash on them for doing stuff like that. But usually when things like that happen and, and people find ways around it, you want to applaud them. But you also worry about what the backlash is going to be down the road. Right. But I think with all the sports that have been doing it with no audience and just keeping it kind of central to one location, whatever they're doing, they've actually done very well with how they've actually been able to maintain the safety for everybody. I'm definitely not against that. I thought it was great. All I'm saying is, is that in those situations, there's going to be some sort of anger towards that because in some people's minds, they're putting people at risk, you know, because one, they've got to travel. Two, they've got to be around each other again. And then three, they've got to actually be in contact with one another. And then they're going to go back home after being in contact with people and then be around family members and kids. And this is, I mean, like I said, I'm not one of those people, but this is the other side. And I try to look at both sides to understand the problem. And I try to look at both sides and understand both sides. So when you look at it from that perspective, I kind of understand it. Don't agree with it, but I understand it. Yeah, definitely. We're going to take a quick break to show some love to another podcast. Coming every week on podcast platforms everywhere. A podcast like no other. Listen to John as he talks about comic books, video games, and anything he wants. Every week is a new topic. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll subscribe. Follow The Basement Reload on all social media platforms at Basement Reload and smash that subscribe button. It's time for a reload. 
Okay, so we'll get a little bit into your career here, and uh, I guess we'll start off with MMA. Uh, for those that don't know, you were the first super fight champion. You defeated Dan Severn at UFC 6. You're also the first foreign MMA champion in Japan. You won the King of Pancrase. How did you get started in MMA? I was actually doing pro wrestling in Mooresville, North Carolina with um, Nelson Royal. And I, Dean Malenko, who came up from Florida, was staying at our house. He was traveling together with me because he was doing that territory with us at the time. And I remember he popped in this tape and it showed these, these two Japanese uh, fighters, which was Fanaki and Suzuki. They were young boys at the time and they were fighting each other. And what I saw on the tape was just, it just blew me away. Because the only time you ever saw any kind of combat like that was in a street fight. And it didn't look that good, right? It just lasted uh, 15 seconds, 20 seconds at the most. These guys were flipping and flopping and going for these different joint blocks. And they were kicking, punching and all these things. And I was like, that is just awesome. Of course, when I'm watching it, I didn't understand that the ending was predetermined. I just thought, wow, that is incredible. And he looked at me and he said, those guys are actually going after one another. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. So I love that. And he goes, well, I can hook you up. They, they train at my dad's school. So he put me in touch with a guy named Sammy Serenaka, who was a booker for Japan that was working out of Dean Malenko's studio there. And I believe it was Florida. And I did a tryout. And next thing I know, I was over in Japan in front of 17,000 people having my first fight. And of course, you know, once I got into it, I understood that, especially in UWF, that the, the the match itself was was stiff. It was like sparring. You're not trying to drop people or really hurt them, but you're out. You're you are hitting them, and that the groundwork was in and out of submission holds, and you weren't trying to lock people down and, and make them tap. You were allowing escape um, routes so that it looked like you were constantly going after submissions and escaping. And then the ending was predetermined. And um, so when I got there, I found that out. But all my tryouts were real. It was no predetermined ending. You, know, you had to go in and you had to fight. And so for me, I just was like so, because I was doing pro wrestling at the time, and I was like, this is the next step. And literally, that was my first experience. And I did it in front of 17,000 people. And then from that point, I went into what we see today, which is the mixed martial arts with Pancras, the Pancras organization, and literally went into business with the two guys I saw on tape, which was Fanaki and Suzuki. Nice. And you've got to fight some of the who's who's of MMA, just to name a few, Hoist Gracie, Maurice Smith, Bas Rutten, Severin, Taktarov, Don Fry, Rich Franklin, Sakuraba, Pedro Hizzo. Who was your toughest opponent? Well, especially if you're, because I had a long career, I mean, a really long career. And so I, I couldn't really give you the toughness at the end because I just wasn't the same fighter. Although I still enjoyed the training and competing, I just wasn't that the same guy. So if I was going to look at it when I was literally in my prime and really taking the world, you know, on fires, killing everything, um, I would say Fanaki only because he knew everything I was going to do because I trained with him. I learned from him, along with Fujiwara and, and a lot of other guys. I learned from those guys. So there was really, it was hard when we actually did our first pancreas event where me and Fanaki fought in the main event. It was tough because he knew everything I was going to do. So all my training had to change. And I had to do different setups and different ways of, of doing things. And I remember Boss Rudin one time said in one of the matches we had where I beat him in a spinning knee bar in our second fight pretty fast. And I remember him was saying in his documentary, well, that's not how I was taught that I would do the knee bar. 
And that's because I had changed all my setups because I was training with those guys for so long. And then when Pankers came out and it was the real deal, I started changing all my setups and then how I was getting into different submissions. And so when he complained about Fanaki teaching him and thought that maybe he was teaching him wrong so I would win, um, that was actually the opposite. They didn't want me to win because I was fighting in the UFC. They were hoping that Boss would beat me. Um, but what I did do was I did change my setups and to do a spinning knee bar. I don't think they've seen anybody do that except me. So I left one name off of that list that you have faced, and that was Tito Ortiz. And a lot of us know the feud that happened, at least my generation, the feud that happened between Tito Ortiz. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that that came, it wasn't on Tito's side. It was all on my side, more frustration than anything else. Just because I, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get where I needed to be. But inside, I knew I knew my abilities and what I used to have. And I just, I couldn't get there, right? And so it was frustration. And so it came out whenever we were in front of each other because it had nothing to do with him. I just felt just very, very disappointed and angry that I couldn't get where I wanted to be. And uh, no matter how hard I trained or tried to, to get where I was, I just wasn't the same fighter. And I think I was 38, 40, and 42 when I fought him. So I was pretty long in the tooth at the time. And it was frustration, right, and anger. But it played for good TV, you know. I mean, it really did because I let it all out. And it was definitely emotional. But I hold no anger towards Tito Ortiz. And I really want everyone to know that. That was just me being frustrated and angry that I couldn't get where I wanted to be. And so I was trying to push myself and create anger and this tension so it make me work harder and, and, and make me want it more. It just didn't work out. Tito, in, in fact, in my opinion, at that time, pound for pound, was the best fighter in the world. And uh, here I was at, you know, 40 years old trying to keep up with them. And it just wasn't going to happen. Like UFC 40 was actually credited with saving MMA uh, in the U.S. because it did such big numbers, had a big pay-per-view numbers, garnered a lot of mainstream media. I still remember it to this day being all over the news. I have watched UFC since UFC 1, been there since the beginning, still watching it today. I still try to watch whatever I can uh, in terms of other organizations, but we only get so much televised here as well. So uh, whatever I can watch, uh, I'm watching. But I still remember that feud like it was yesterday. And like I said, it was credited with helping MMA survive in the U.S. I like to think so. And I know that a lot of people that are in those positions say the same thing. I was very happy to be a part of that. You know, again, wished I could have been better. Unfortunately, you know, father time wins all the time. So he's undefeated. There's no there's, there's no way I was going to fight that. And if I would have won, I don't think it would have been right. Like a lucky punch that I caught him with and dropped him to his knees. Obviously, for me, I would want that. But, you know, I wasn't ready to be that guy. You know, I was way past my prime. So Really, the reason why I went back was because, you know, Dana came to me and they were dying. They could not get an opponent for Tito Ortiz that would draw tickets, that would sell tickets and get people in the seats. And uh, I told them I could do it. And so I took it, even though, you know, I, I even had a bad knee at the time. I was supposed to get surgery and I put it off to do the fight. And I did that because I wanted the UFC to fight because that's my legacy. You know, that's part of me. And so I wasn't doing it, you know, uh, because Dana asked me to or because I was doing it for Dana or, you know, I mean, yeah, to a point you want to try to help people. But this is about me and my legacy and trying to keep this thing alive. And so I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that that happened. So. You are known as the world's most dangerous man. Can you let everybody know how that moniker came to be? Yeah, 
you know, people used to always say, you know, locker room or, you know, in the world that we're in, you can't nickname yourself. You can't give yourself a nickname. It's got to come natural. People just, you know, they just got to give it to you and it's got to fit. And, um, you know, and that's true with this because it's not something that you, especially during those times where we were looked at as being barbaric. I'm not sure I would have chose the name the world's most dangerous man, uh, you know, uh, because they were always thinking that we were like these people that came out of prison or, or in the alleys or in biker bars and just these guys that didn't follow the rules. There was this thing that people thought about us. So um, when they came, uh, and I forget what station it was, uh, one of these uh, stations were doing this thing about world's most dangerous animal, places, food, and person. So they had gone through a lot of different people trying to figure out who that would be before they ever came to me. And they end up coming to me because at the time, I believe I was champion in Japan and I was champion there in the UFC. So there was a two continents fighting people from all over the world and I beat everybody. And uh, so they decided that they were going to name me the most dangerous man. And when they came to me with that, I was very hesitant. Because I felt like, wow, you know, I've got three kids at the time. I've got more now. But at the time, I had three kids and a family. And I felt like, man, I, I don't want this thing to be negative on national TV. So I asked them what their thought was doing this. And they basically came to me and said, listen, we want to humanize you guys. We want people to see who you are behind the scenes, out of the cage. And we think that when people can kind of see who you are as people, they'll see that you're no different than anybody else other than you just have a job where you, you compete, just like football players and boxers and different people, military, all these things. When you get back and you're in your house, you're different. Uh, everybody's different. And so I said, okay. And so they did the story on it and, uh, and it really humanized who we are as people fighting in the, in the world of mixed martial arts. So that's how I got it. So I didn't name myself. Uh, it wasn't what I was looking for. But it just stuck with me after that when that, when that story came out, called me the world's most dangerous man. People just latched onto it. Yeah, I can tell you that I have, like I said, I have seen every UFC from number one to where we are today. So I've basically been following your career the entire time. It was a pleasure watching you fight, get into the octagon, get into the rings. It was amazing to see all of that. So I want to thank you for that because I grew up watching you fight. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We're going to take one more break to help out another podcast. What is Gen X? What is the silent generation? What do generations have in common? Hi, I'm Trish the Dish from the Gen X Voice podcast, and I invite you to listen to conversations I have with folks from different generations, backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences in an attempt to see what connects rather than divides us. Even though Gen X has been called slackers, Karens, or not mentioned at all in some cases, we are the bridge generation, so I feel compelled to do my part to destroy ageism by bringing all these voices together. And as a bonus, each guest gets to answer some 80s questions at the end of each show. So download and listen to Gen X Voice today on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And let's see how much we have in common after all. I want to get a little bit into your uh, WWF career at the time. It's WWE now. And again, you got to be in the ring during probably one of the best eras in wrestling, which was the Attitude Era. You were in the ring with some of the biggest stars there. Vader, British Bulldog, The Rock, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Austin, Owen Hart, Jeff Jarrett, Chris Jericho. How was that getting into the WWE? 
It was awesome. I mean, like I said, there was a journey there. Obviously, I did it early on. And then, of course, you know, lateraled into the fighting. And, and then from there, I lateraled into the WWF. And um, I remember trying when No Holds Barred or MMA was starting to take some hits with Bob Meyerowitz as the owner, constantly in court. And that uh, my contract was coming up and, and, and I was supposed to get a certain amount in order to keep my, my world going with the fighters and the group home and, and my family, all the things I had going. And uh, with what they were going to pay me, I couldn't do it uh, because they were taking so many hits. And they were in court all the time, fighting with different cities and states, their legislation, all that stuff. So it was crazy time because their, their money was being all sucked up into, into legal fees. And so they basically said they couldn't give me what I needed. And, and then of course, I had a good conversation with Bob Meyerowitz and, and, uh, and told him I just can't, I can't. Even though it's what I love doing, I mean, my first responsibility is to take care of my family, my business. Um, and so that's when I started looking elsewhere. And I remember looked over in Japan. I looked here in the States, WCW, WBF, you know, everywhere. I looked at all my options to, to see what would work. And uh, Vince was the one that jumped on right away and had an idea that he wanted to do. And I'm not sure that. It, from what I could see, I don't think the idea was necessarily putting me in that role, but having me as a part of them would make whoever was doing that role more legitimate by bringing me in and creating that atmosphere. And I thought that Stone Cold, Bret Hart, a lot of guys, as you've seen how that attitude era develops. And a lot of that, I thought, had to do with the presence of the Knowles part of the MMA stuff, that being able to match up against some of these other guys. Um, and be able to have that presence in there that would allow these other guys to create those characters. You know, look at Goldberg. Goldberg was a, uh, you know, just a split image of, of what I was doing, you know, and he did a, a tremendous job and put him over the top just because of that character that he had, you know, the gloves, the trunks, the shoes. And he did a great job at that. So I think because of that, because of what the world was looking at at the time with Noel's Bard and that, that cult that they had, to be able to have me go over there and raise attention to the WWF was very difficult because they said I sold out. I was, you know, punk and then, you know, all these horrible things. But nobody knew behind the scenes of why I was doing it. Um, you know, uh, I, had to have, I had to survive and I just couldn't do it doing what I love to do. But luckily for me, I fell in love with pro wrestling and to this day, I still love it and still want to do it. So, it, yeah, that's that's really how it got started was, was Vince really grabbed onto it and took the idea and, and ran with it. And I thought, you know, that to me personally, if you look at the era where they were just getting killed on Monday Night Raw by WCW, I truly believe that that was the difference was that he added in that that I don't care attitude era. Yeah. And you started off, I believe, in the Bret Hart and Austin match and you were the special enforcer for that match, right? Yes, that was incredible, man. Uh Going into the match, obviously, it was very concerning because here I'm coming from the world that I came from. And now I'm going into the world. I'm not wrestling, actually. I'm not doing things in there to be able to get the aggression and do the things that I do. I'm actually going in there and having to participate in this match and pretend that those guys are doing stuff to each other. Right? Like, I've got to have this character. And I don't know if I can do it. I mean, I really don't know if, hey, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I remember when I went in there about five minutes into the match, man, it was like I couldn't tell the difference between what I was doing in the MMA world. They did such a good job of, of that, putting that match on. Um, and I know both those guys, you know, 
whatever they were talking about in the back, it worked because they beat the crap out of each other. It was literally a good fight. And uh, those guys did a heck of a job. They put their bodies on the line. And I truly believe that changed the sport. And I still remember the ending of that match because the referee had gotten knocked out. Uh, you were into the ring and you were telling uh, Steve Austin, you know, if you do not respond, I'm going to tell the ref to ring the bell. And then you told him to ring the bell. So that's still fresh in my memory because that was actually one of my favorite matches of all time. Yeah, like I said, I think that was a turning point in wrestling. I really do. I thought that uh, that match gave uh, the other wrestlers almost a look at what what it was going to look like now. Because you look at it now today, it's not the same as it was then. It's just a lot more aggressive. There's a lot more submission holds. There's a lot more techniques and stuff that they do on the ground. And, and there's a lot more physical movement in matches now. There's not a whole lot of build up, build up. It's just constant go. And uh, so you look at that match between Stone Cold and Bret Hart, you know, I, I truly believe that that was, uh, that's, that's, that's what turned wrestling, I think, into what it is today. Yeah, I agree 100%. Now, I mentioned a lot of the names uh, in wrestling that you had a chance to work with. Who were some of your favorites that you got to share the ring with? First of all, I was really blessed to be there and work with these guys. A lot of guys, it was Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Undertaker, Kane, Big Boss Man. Uh, Vader, Big Van Vader. I mean, he was tremendous. Big dude that moved like that was just incredible. Um, you know, Steve Blackman was another guy I loved working with because of his physicality and his background. Uh, he was awesome to work with. Al Snow um, was awesome. He's good. Uh, Mankind was a guy, uh, whether it was Mankind or, or whatever guy that he was coming in the ring with, he was always that guy that you knew you could go in and have a real physical match with and that he was going to be good with it. And his pace of work was really steady. And it was, and it was awesome because there was none of that stop out of the, he was constantly going, even though it wasn't fast. Um, so he was one that I enjoyed working with, but I think if we were going to talk about um, a feud, I would say that one, the one I did have, uh, which was the rock was obviously one of my favorites because we ran a long program and, you know, eventually I ended up getting the Intercontinental title. He had it first and I was able to get that. So that was a really good program. I thought it, it really helped both of us get to where we're at today, even though I was already made in the MMA world, but it helped me in my pro wrestling world. And it, it skyrocketed him because then he was able to find his character and, and who he was going to be. Because before that, he was just kind of all over the place. But as soon as he got a mic in his hand and we started cutting promos and, and we started doing our feuds together he just took off you could see the star in him and it was really awesome to be a part of that and watch him grow into that but the other one that didn't happen that i thought i wished would have happened was jericho we started something and uh, i just never really got to finish that i know i had some things i had to deal with so i wasn't able to stick around and be able to uh, start into that but because of how he works and his aggressiveness and his ability to use the mic, I thought we could have had a really great um, opportunity to do something. But unfortunately, those are one of the ones that didn't happen. Other one is like Brock Lesnar, you know, uh, what's his name? Goldberg, another one that I thought uh, should have had. And then, of course, the ankle lock match with me and uh, Kurt Angle, um, which that never happened. But those are ones that are wishes. Yeah, and you started off with the ankle lock. And like you said, Kurt Angle used it. Uh, Jack Swagger uh, used it. 
How do you feel about that? Well, I always tell people, if you get upset about someone else using your moves, then we have no moves because someone's always done something first. Remember the first suplex, right? Now everybody's doing it, but somebody did it first. And to me, that, I think, in my opinion, that just shows how creative and, and how good the move is uh, for other people to want to use it. Uh, if people don't want to use it, then it's no good. And so I don't have a problem. I had a kid come up to me the other day. I don't want to mention his name unless I get permission, but he talked to me about using it. Um, and I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah, but it's not a finish. I said, I don't care. I said, uh, that makes no difference. I said, I, I'm honored that you would use that. And that's just the way it is, I think, with any move. As long as you're not doing it when a guy's using it for a finish and you use it on the same show, I think there might be some issues with that only because, you know, it's going against the impact of your move somebody before that actually kicks out of it or you use it before somebody else and it's their move. Um, so yeah, that would be the only issue I would have with someone using it. Other than that, man, I think that they're basically paying tribute to you. And you fought for the WWE, WWF uh, title against Shawn Michaels and you used that move. And I still remember this because it was, it was funny. I wasn't expecting it. And he had that, that fake leg uh, on. Uh, I still find that funny to this day. I still remember that to this day. That was that was quite the segment. Yeah, he's shot, you know, with those guys, man. That's what's so special about those guys, you know, the ones that carry the WWF, carry the organization. They're just creative, man. They come up with some really unique stuff, and that's what makes them great. Yeah. And then you joined the corporation. Uh, you joined uh, the union very briefly. Um, how did you feel about the corporation and their feud? Well, uh, I think I was more disappointed that it, that it didn't last. Like, I thought it was way too short. And didn't really get a dragon on long enough for it to really mean anything. But I thought the start of it, it had an impact. Obviously, people still talk about it today. Um, there's a corporation, the union. Um, there was a lot of different ones that started. But just I don't think really had a good run. Or at least had a direction of something that meant something. Uh, it was just kind of there and then they're gone. So, but yeah, I loved it. I loved any of those because it, it was able to put a bunch of superstars all together at one time. And did you prefer working as a heel or a face? Didn't matter. Um, I didn't change much. You know, I, I, I it just depend on who I was wrestling. And then, you know, maybe uh, step it up a little bit with the aggressiveness. But yeah, uh, I didn't have to really do much because that was just me. You know, I, I, I was just me. And you are not yet in the WWE Hall of Fame. I think you should be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, when I was a little bit younger, I had my own thoughts. But, you know, really, it's above my pay grade. It's not something that I have any control over. Obviously, it would be awesome to be a part of it. But again, I'm not the one that makes those decisions. You know, it's in their hands. I'm very, very, very fortunate and happy that I was able to go into the impact of Hall of Fame. Those guys have been awesome to me. And WWE has been, too, you know. You know, I've had my issues, but everybody has issues at one point in time, but it doesn't take away the respect that I have for the WWF and the things that I was able to accomplish there and the opportunities that they gave. No, no question. So, but if it happens, man, I mean, you know, I'll be, be happy, very happy because it's, it's obviously something that everybody wants in it, right? You want to be recognized as one of the greats and be somebody that was a game changer. And I think I was able to do that, but again, those, it's not my call. So We'll see what happens in down the road. Um, hopefully I'll get in. You know, we'll see what happens. But 
you know, I'm grateful for the things that I have accomplished, which is being in the UFC Hall of Fame and being in the Impact World Hall of Fame. And I think one of the accomplishments that you should actually be proud of is actually being a trailblazer for people like Kurt Angle to come in and Brock Lesnar and Ronda Rousey to come in from combat sports into the actual wrestling world. How do you feel about that? And how does that make you feel about being the trailblazer to set that all up? Well, I can tell you right now that I was very fortunate that I was a trailblazer for many things. And it was just being there at the right time. I was a trailblazer for being the first gaijin to capture a mixed martial arts championship over in Japan. I was the first um, champion, super fight, single fight, which all the belts go through now, champion. I was the first one. Before they had the world tournaments, the first single fight one was me. And that's what everybody does now. So all those go through that. That's where it comes from, the single fight. And I fought all weights. Wasn't one way, so it was open division, and I was the first to do that. And uh, and of course, then crossover into um, pro wrestling from mixed martial arts, or actually from pro wrestling into mixed martial arts and mixed martial arts back into pro wrestling. Uh, but that was Vince Torelli. This is Ken Shamrock. So to have that and to be able to look back on that is uh, definitely something I'm very proud of, and uh, and I love being able to tell stories and talk about those times. Because I think that they are things that people uh, can look on and learn from. You know, it's a lot of stuff that I had to go through that those guys didn't have to go through because I did it first. And I, like I told you before about the disrespectful comments and, and how people were just killing me in the media, whether it was in the uh, mixed martial arts or no holes barred uh, reporters, and that the pro wrestling was more uh, positive about it because I was moving into there. But the MMA media was killing me. If I hadn't have been successful by doing that, I wouldn't be where I'm at because I would have had nowhere to go. I mean, I'd been left flat on my face. But I did it and I broke the barrier. I showed people how it was going to be done. I made it acceptable for almost now. That's what people do when they get done with MMA. They go into pro wrestling. So it's something I'm proud of. And what do you think is or what do you feel is your greatest career accomplishment? Well, as far as my career, I, you know, I would definitely have to say that I'm going to go with the very first, uh, being the very first Pancras champion and the very first single fight champion, super fight champion, because those things will never be repeated. It'll never happen again. I was the first. Now, in your personal life, I'm not sure if you're still doing this today. You work with uh, underprivileged um, youth. Uh, are you still uh, active with that today? Yes, I do. And I have a uh, website, KenShamrock.com. And I have a, a thing on there. It's Book Ken Shamrock. And that, so people will all the time, and which we've got loads of people coming in all the time asking for appearances and speaking engagements. And some of those will be talking with kids or juvenile halls or, you know, people that are in, in group homes. So, I'm, and I've even had people approach me about prison, too, about coming and talking with people in prison. So, and I've done all those things. And, of course, I came from that area, you know, where so I kind of understand where they're at and some of the thought processes and help get them in the right frame of mind moving forward. So those are things I enjoy doing. Um, so, yeah, again, I, uh, something that, that I enjoy doing. So, and again, if anybody has that and they're interested, uh, again, like I said, KenShamrock.com and go on the website to book Ken Shamrock, and I'm happy to to uh, speak to you know, group home kids, juvenile kids, prison, any of those things where I can hopefully uh, make a difference.
Yeah, that's amazing. So everyone that is listening, um, I am going to put the link up for you. Uh, I'll put it up on our show notes uh, and I'll spread the the, uh, link out in our social media platforms as well. Just for anybody that needs to have uh, somebody speak and maybe make an impact or difference in some of the youth's lives. Absolutely, because I think that, and I've, I've said this a lot, that, you know, I believe we were put on this earth to strive to be successful. But when we are successful, we have a responsibility to uh, turn around and uh, help somebody else achieve those same opportunities that you had. Because you can't do them by yourself. Somebody's always giving you a hand or an opportunity. So you need to turn around and do the same thing to others. 100% agree with you. Well said. Uh, now, what's something that you want to tell to like all the fans out there, uh, new and old, any piece of advice you have for them? Always be positive. I mean, it's tough in today's world. We see so, so so much negativity, people hating on each other because of somebody they've never met before or a policy or a political position. And it's all good because we all have to have something that we believe in. There's nothing wrong with that. But I would just say, let's be very careful about believing in something and hating on something. There's a big difference. And I think that we all need to take a look at that and understand that we all are beaten, have hearts that beat. We all have families and we all have decisions to make. We all have responsibilities. And we all have pain and disappointment. And so when we have the opportunity to try to make somebody else feel better, I think it just makes the world a better place if we take the opportunity to make someone feel better rather than make somebody feel bad. So I would say, yeah, just, you know, be a little bit more kinder. I mean, I think we're in a good position now where we need to start looking forward, moving forward and uh, be grateful for that. We have an opportunity to be able to make change. And when that change happens, whether you like it or not, we have to move forward and embrace it. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of negativity going on in the world right now. I mean, you have a lot of people locked up during COVID. A lot of people are getting COVID fatigue. There's a lot of political stuff going on in the world right now. It's time that we just all try to come together, be nice to each other, help each other out. Yeah, I mean, again, we're all in this thing, not together, but we're all in this thing. And we have to figure out ways for it to work for us. There's a lot of people out there that didn't get what they wanted. and We still have to move forward. You still cannot be stuck on yesterday. We've got to look at what's going to happen tomorrow and in the next week and the week after that. And it's very important that we're all doing it together. No matter what your position is, man, we have to move forward. And uh, and the only way we do that is to at least try to be kind to people, even if you don't believe the same thing. Just be nice. Yeah, 100% agree. So we're going to wrap up this interview. But like I said, I can tell you that Throughout my childhood growing up, I got to witness you in the UFC. I got to witness you in the WWE and wrestling. I grew up a fan of yours. Uh, I thank you very much for allowing me to have all those years throughout your life, whether it was in martial arts or whether it was in the WWE. Everything was entertaining. I loved watching you fight as well. It was amazing. So I want to thank you for that. I also want to say thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come on today's show. Amazing guest. I had a great conversation. This was amazing. Well, I appreciate that. And if I get the opportunity, I'd like to be able to let people know that you can go to my website, kenshamrock.com, um, and go to book Ken Shamrock. I'm available for any speaking engagement, uh, any motivational speaking, stuff that I'm doing now that I really enjoy. But also, too, I'm also wrestling. So if you have a wrestling event that you want to book me on, I'm open to that. Just go to kenshamrock.com, uh, book Ken Shamrock. So. And also, the any MMA events and stuff like that, too, I'd love to participate in those. So 
that's me, man. Love it. Enjoying myself, uh, traveling quite a bit and enjoying life, man. So uh, I hope everybody else is enjoying life, too, man. Put all the bad stuff behind you. Yeah, 100%. Thank you very much for coming on today's show. And as always, stay safe, be kind to each other, and we will see you later. Amen. Take care.